0: going through um, vertebral subluxation models and definitions. Is there anything really new? Um, Dr. McCoy is on our board of trustees here and is in charge of the awesomeness that is Cairo Futures um, and we want to give him a nice warm welcome as he starts this morning. I'm not gonna be able to use that. I don't think so. Can I have the remote though? though? Good morning. morning. I did not run seven miles this morning, (laughs) but I stayed in the Hampton Inn. (laughs) Um, uh, Matt was talking about this um, sauna experience, the Russian sauna experience. And and he left a few things out on this, very important things. And I I know a little bit about this because I lived in Russia for two years and the first trip over there when they were whining and dining us and trying to get me to come back over there and set up a chiropractic clinic they brought us to the okianskaya sanitarium okay now sanitarium in russia doesn't mean a bad thing Uh, it's a place you go to get healthy and this sanitarium was where uh, brezhnev and ford met uh, there was some arms talks going on in in the 70s uh, 1974 or something <clears throat> so they brought us there to impress us and proceeded to you know engage us in the Russian culture of the sauna so everything he said is true you know you you go from the hot to the cold to the hot to the cold and in between you're getting beaten with these bushes right to stimulate the sympathetics now, the party left out is after that's all over, <coughs> you sit down in your robes and you eat and you drink a lot of vodka. <laughs> <Okay? coughs> and then after a few hours, you do it all again. <laughs> so if you've never had your sympathetic stimuli like that, let me tell you something. It's, it's something to experience. Um, <coughs> also, like Matt uh i had to change a lot of my presentation last night so that's what i did last night uh, while you were all out on the town Um, there was a lot of things discussed yesterday that i had in my presentation so i didn't need to discuss them and there were a lot of things that i felt i could put in there to tie some things together so hopefully uh, hopefully we'll accomplish that uh, this morning so one of the things that I did was I sort of switched. I put the end of my presentation at the beginning of my presentation. Um, Because so much was covered yesterday, I felt like this might even tie together some things from yesterday and then we can move forward with talking about these definitions and these models. (laughs) Relative to uh, research and relative to a research agenda for subluxation, centered chiropractic subluxation chiropractic I've boiled this agenda down to what I call the so what questions okay and the reason they are called the so what" questions is because every time you can answer a question in the affirmative the detractors that we have out there are going to ask a follow-up question all right and they're legitimate questions that have to be answered Uh, The good thing is that there's only a few so-what questions, but it's crucial that we answer these questions uh, if we're going to advance our science. So the first so-what question is, if subluxations exist, and and let's keep in mind something, it's very important. There are people in this profession not just outside the profession, people in the profession, people in leadership positions within this profession, who say subluxations do not exist, all right? So we're gonna forget that nonsense, all right? We're gonna at least start with the premise that something of some significance exists, and we call it a subluxation. So if subluxations exist, what evidence do you have that you can objectively identify them using valid and reliable means? That's the first so what question. Dr. Kent went over this yesterday and and we had a discussion about the reality that there are valid and objective ways to measure components of the vertebral subluxation. So we can answer yes in the affirmative, but the detractors say, so what? If they exist and can be identified using valid and reliable means, what evidence do you have that their existence leads to adverse health or other outcomes? This is, this second part is where the wheels start to wobble on our wagon, okay? We have some good evidence uh, of improved health outcomes relative to subluxation, reduction, or correction. However, the level of that evidence is, is wanting at this point, and the amount of that evidence is wanting. And the majority of that, of that evidence exists in the form of a case study. Not that there isn't any value in a case study, I'd be the last person to say that, uh, but we have to, at some point move beyond that in terms of the evidence that we have so if we end up being able to answer this question in the affirmative they will say so what if they exist and you have some evidence that their existence leads to adverse health outcomes what evidence do we have that we can actually correct them okay if subluxations are a bad thing and we're able to convince people and health policy experts and so forth that they're a bad thing can we actually fix them can we do something about them because if we can't then you know we need somebody else to take over if we answer that question in the affirmative the final question is if you have evidence you can correct them what evidence do you have that correcting them leads to improved health outcomes this cycle has to be closed this circle has to be closed so these so what questions form the basis of the research agenda at the Foundation for Vertible Subluxation. I mean, this is is sort of putting it in layman's terms here of boiling our research agenda down in order to answer each of these questions. One of the things I want to stress here is that there is absolutely, at this point, no excuse for not answering these so-what questions, for not addressing this research agenda, okay, in terms of the ability to do it all right we are in the era of big data we've been in this era for for a long time at this point okay the technical means to answer these questions exists we have the existence of the internet we have the ability to manipulate large databases and we have advanced statistical methods to analyze all of this sort of data okay so the technical means exist. that's not an excuse it's the will of the profession to put its energy and resources towards answering these questions that's missing that's the problem we face so we have this research agenda it's spelled out uh, uh, in a document uh, with the foundation for vertebral subluxation it's a 20-year plan our agenda centers on five areas looking at operational models measurement epidemiology clinical strategy and health outcomes we uh, recently published a report of the work we've done over the past seven years Uh, You can get that off of the website. We have several goals related to this research agenda. They're broken down with objectives that are fairly specific uh, and itemized. Um, I'm not going to take the time to go through it for time's sake, um, but I'll I'll at least tell you what the headings of the goals are. The first goal is to encourage and support the development of the next generation of subluxation-centered chiropractic researchers. You know, I've been blessed in chiropractic. Uh, relative to the work that I do because over the years I've had some incredible mentors in in a minute or two I'm going to talk about uh, some work that Ralph Boone did anybody in here who know who Ralph Boone was Um, I can remember presenting at IRAPS I don't even know how long ago it was and I remember and this was on Sherman's campus Ralph sitting in the back of the room and and I was trembling in fear of the questions that he was going to ask when I was done, because Ralph was a smart man. Uh, I was talking about that trip to Russia. He was on that trip. Uh, And I got to spend two weeks with him uh, picking his brain and learning about science of vertebral subluxation. And and even more than that, (coughs) understanding the politics of the chiropractic profession that he filled me in on uh, during that trip. Uh, And then I was blessed to be able to take over uh, when he left uh, uh, his position as editor of the journal of vertebral subluxation research. I had to step into those shoes. So I've been blessed to be surrounded with people like Ralph, with Dr. Kent, uh, to have been mentored by somebody like Dr. Kent, to be able to pick up the phone and and pick his brain or ask a question that normally I, I might be embarrassed to even ask you know, I can just go ahead and ask it. So where is this next generation of chiropractic researchers coming from? Where are the new war horses, as Fred Bard said? You know, we've got to train these people. We have to find them and we have to give them the resources that they need and the education that they need so that there's somebody picking up the mantle when we're done with this thing. Cause you know, I'm 50 something years old at this point. How much longer am I going to be at it? How much longer is Dr. Kent going to be at it? You know where are the next generation of these people our second goal it has to do with elucidating the nature of vertebral subluxation this has to do with models of subluxation research on the validity and reliability of it but especially epidemiology of vertebral subluxation and we've got some really exciting stuff we're working on uh, relative to the epidemiology of vertebral subluxation in fact we've got a meeting dr. Fedorchuk hopefully will be here for his presentation we have a meeting with uh, emory university and a couple of weeks ago over this epidemiological data we have on the prevalence of vertebral subluxation uh, in the population okay Uh, so we've got some exciting stuff going on relative to that utilization of vertebral subluxation screening and management you know if we believe that vertebral subluxations make people sick and kill them then we should be screening for these things okay and and i want to distinguish this from uh from practice building and from marketing individual practices and things of that nature that's that's not necessarily what i'm talking about i'm talking about public health screening of these things okay people are screened for blood pressure people are screened for all types of cancer people are screened for all types of diseases where are they screened for subluxations other than an individual chiropractor attempting to try to, you know, acquire new patients into their practice. That that can't be our mo- our, our single motivation for screening the public for vertebral subluxation, okay? <clears throat> and the fourth goal here has to do with health policy. So we're not just interested in research. We're also interested in changing health policy. If our goal is to get every man, woman, and child checked for vertebral subluxation, then we can certainly continue to do what hasn't worked for the past 100 years, which is one spine at a time, educating that patient and hoping they tell others. And at some point, you know, we reach the 100th monkey, and all of a sudden, everybody shows up on Monday morning because you know, uh, the, the, something has happened metaphysically that everybody's decided they need to get their spines checked. Okay? That hasn't worked. And the evidence suggests that it's not working uh, relative to utilization rates and, that, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, so we've got to change health policy okay we have to have health policy experts uh, drive the masses into chiropractors offices and and the scary thing about that is if that we accomplish that we're going to need a lot of chiropractors in order to handle the volume of patients that have to be screened and taken care of and and uh, the last goal here is to help ensure the survival of the clinical practice of uh, subluxation correction Uh, and this has to do um, you know with epidemiological data and getting that information out and then also this last one educating the public but also in terms of mentoring and coaching uh, practitioners relative to 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 this model so that that's the agenda we're working on when we're talking about definitions and subluxation on all this stuff this this tends to be what I hear Uh, from chiropractors when talking about subluxation you know why bother why are we talking about this chiropractors can't even agree on the definition of a subluxation you have the grumpy guy there harumph harumph right we can't agree on it why are we even talking about it we should just abandon it it probably doesn't exist anyway that's what we're faced with If we go back to 1996, this article by Rome you guys are probably familiar with, there's 296 variations and synonyms of subluxation in the literature, 296. And so, you know, based on that review of of literature, Rome says, you know, if we have all of these definitions and we have all this terminology in the literature and there's 200 and 300, you know, variations of it, there must be some entity of some significance that exists. It's not a figment of our imagination that's ended up in the scientific literature. This is one of the things I I put in after uh, Bill Decken spoke yesterday. In the absence of a chiropractic paradigm or some candidate for a chiropractic paradigm all the facts that could possibly pertain to development of a chiropractic science are likely to seem equally relevant you know bill was talking about narrowing the focus and not being afraid of doing that you know we don't need to include everything we don't need to be the nutritionist we don't need to be the acupuncturist we don't need to be the exercise physiologist we need to find and analyze and correct vertebral subluxations. That should be our focus. So hopefully I'm I'm Bill's first uh, reference for his radical science presentation. (laughs) You know, he said one that regards radical science he defined as one that regards the boundaries between disciplines as useful constructs for helping focus on particular classes of problems. I mean, that's what we're talking about here this weekend. We're talking about this particular problem of vertebral subluxation. This uh, I stuck in here. I won't tell you who it's from yet. I'll sort of read it to you and point out why I put it in here, and then I'll tell you who it's from. It says, any sound scientific theory, whether of time or of any other concept, should, in my opinion, be based on the most workable philosophy of science, the positivist approach put forward by Karl Popper and others. According to this way of thinking, a scientific theory is a mathematical model that describes and codifies the observations we make, a good theory will describe a large range of phenomenon on the basis of a few simple postulates and will make definite prediction, predictions that can be, detested, can be tested. Think about this in terms of a large range of phenomena based on a few simple postulates. Think about the simple postulates related to chiropractic and vertebral subluxation, but how wide-ranging the impact is that they have. If the predictions agree with the observations, the theory survives that test, though it can never be proved to be correct. You know, that's something we sort of have to deal with, right? Nothing can ever be proven, Okay, Well, whoever wants to hear that, but that's the reality of it. I can remember sitting in my final statistics course at Emory University, getting my master's in public health, and it's a regression analysis course. Anybody in here ever taken regression analysis, Okay, I would rather stick my hand in a toaster than take that class again, Okay. And this is our final class right and and during this whole program right it's all science-based public health okay one statistics class after another one epidemiological class after another all about science and all about the evidence that we have to support public health measures right we get into this class and this guy is writing some stuff on a, on a whiteboard <coughs> and just as an aside like he wasn't even thinking about it out of his mouth comes well, we can 't really ever prove anything anyway, and he should, and we 're all sitting there like, "What <laughs> like that 's the first time it took me all, the, all, the, all these years of my life to get to that point for somebody to say, "Well, you can never really prove anything anyway and then we ended up having a whole discussion the rest of the class about that because we 're all sitting there like, well, "Well, why are we bothering you know um, so you can never, can never be proved to correct. On the other hand, if the observations, and here's the answer to that part of it, if the observations disagree with the predictions, one has to discard or modify the theory. At least that's what's supposed to happen. In practice, people often question the accuracy of the observations, and this is uh, uh, pointing to what Bill was talking about yesterday, and the reliability and moral character of those making the observations, right? We don't like what they're saying, so let's attack them. Let's do an ad hominem attack against this person because we don't agree with them. If one takes the positivist position, as I do, one cannot say what time actually is. All one can do is describe what has been found to be a very good model for time and say what predictions it makes. Okay? Now, that is from Stephen Hawking. Okay? Um, and you know, if you don't agree with Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> I'm not going to argue with him. <coughs> So what I'm going to do with this in terms of definitions and models and so forth is I'm going to start at the, at the beginning. Okay, uh, We're going to go back in time, then we're going to come forward in time, and then we're going to handle the middle after that, all right, just so you understand where we're going with this. So the early vertebral subluxation model, this is Palmer's model. You all are familiar with this. It's been discussed several times this weekend. Vertebral misalignment, occlusion of a spinal or intervertebral foramen, pressure on nerves, number four interference with the quantity flow of the mental impulse okay let's let's burn that into your brain for the rest of my presentation that that fourth component okay interference with the quantity flow of the mental impulse this is what Ralph Boone and Grab Dobson had to say about this back in 1996 so this was in the volume one issue one of the journal of vertebral subluxation okay Ralph Boone Graham Dobson talking about mental impulse it's important to include the fourth component the mental impulse since it has been proposed that its interference would result result in loss of adaptive potential ultimately depriving the organism of its health now I'm gonna as I go through this presentation I'll be highlighting some key words like adaptive potential now in these papers they wrote a series of papers on this and what they talked about relative to the mental impulse was organizing and coordinating information that this is sort of what the mental impulse did it was responsible for organization and coordinating information (coughs) so so far relative to the mental impulse these terms we have are organizing coordinating adaptability and we're going to add some more as we go along this is from Stevenson. We might conceive of this mental impulse as being composed of certain kinds of physical energy in proper proportions, which will balance other such forces in the tissue cell. Bill talked about this yesterday. as electricity, valency, magnetism, cohesion? Perhaps some of these energies are known to us in physics. What right do we have to assume that we have found them all? Right, And that's as true today as it was when Stevenson first wrote that. The other thing I think it's important to point out is that B.J. said that his innate intelligence is not God. He did not uh, equate innate intelligence with God. It's clear that the mental impulse, this is from Dr. Kent, the mental impulse as described by the Palmers is not synonymous with innate intelligence or the neurochemical action potential. It is a thought which may be expressed through a variety of neurobiological neurobiolo- mechanisms. These mechanisms include synaptic and non-synaptic processes. And this is non-synaptic processes is what we're going to focus on. So, there's all co- kinds of non-synaptic me- messaging that, go, that, that goes on here that Ralph Boone and Grab Dobson basically said uh, uh, give us a framework okay, by which we can, in a modern sense, look at the mental impulse. Okay? So these include axoplasmic transport, uh, this phenomenon called epapsis, volume transmission neuropeptides, and field effects. So, in axoplasmic transport, you might remember this from, from biology, substances flow bidirectionally, it includes proteins, neurotransmitters, growth factors. Propulsion is via actomyosin, which is a contractile protein, and it has constructive functions. Okay? Epap- epapsis, when I first read uh, uh, this paper, you know, when it first came out, uh, this, this concept just really reached out and grabbed me. And th- so this is where two or more axons or dendrites touch without forming a typical synaptic contact. Inflammation flow to tissues can occur, I mean, pay attention to this, can occur even with total lack of the a- action potential, but it still uses the nerve for conveyance. I mean, if you want to have some fun, do a PubMed search on epapsis, okay? I mean, that's a rabbit hole you may never come out of. Uh, volume transmission involves the flow of ionic currents, chemical signals transmitted or radiated from neurons. Neuroendocrine release appears to involve only volume transmission. There are over 50 informational substances modulating brain function. A okay? few people have talked about brain function. Right? All, suddenly, it appears that chiropractors have discovered the brain. Uh, we're going to get more into that in a, a minute. Neuropeptides and their receptors uh, join the brain, glands, and immune system and network of communication between the brain and the body. So, you know, we're sort of getting outside of this typical uh, 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 view of, you know, information being transferred, you know, through a nerve itself, okay? Uh, And I'm not even going to get into, you know, soliton waves and all that stuff because I wouldn't even begin to be able to explain that to you. We'll leave that for Simon. Uh, field effects mediated by large extracellular currents or generated by axons during growth and repair so this is this 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 section that I just did just forms the basis to support sort of a modern view or a modern approach and gives us a basis for research relative to the mental impulse okay so I told you what's old okay we'll talk about what's new here all right so recently You know and it's an interesting thing for whatever reason that i don't understand you know dr kent and i have had endless conversations about this chiropractors just want to continue to define subluxation right instead of you know picking up a shovel and let's do the research they just spend their time redefining it all right and ralph boone makes this argument that it doesn't need to be redefined we just need to research The definition that was given to us first before we throw it out and we'll get more into that but needless to say the asrf the australian spinal research foundation recently came up with a new definition of vertebral subluxation and this is how it's defined this was just in june 2017. Uh, the foundation for vertebral subluxation had a series of conversations with the asrf over this Uh, we attended some meetings relative to this uh, including even the rubicon uh, at the rubicon conference Uh, so we we had uh, some voice in this um, uh, as as the definition was developed but it wasn't our intention at the foundation to come up with a new definition it's just not what we're about it's not it's not our mission a vertebral subluxation is a diminished state of being, compromising a state of reduced coherence altered biomechanical function altered neurological function and altered adaptability okay I highlighted a few terms here all right we still see some key components okay uh, of historical models here, biomechanical changes uh, and neurological function, but they've thrown in coherence and adaptability. So if we add to that list of sort of terms that we were talking about, now we have coherence. And if you look this up, some synonyms for coherence are connection, consistency, integration, holding together, being united, being consistent, okay? The other group that recently came up with a new definition of subluxation is the Rubicon group. This is a a big word salad, so strap yourself in. We currently define a chiropractic subluxation as a self-perpetuating central segmental motor control problem that involves a joint such as a vertebral motion segment that's not moving appropriately resulting in ongoing maladaptive neuroplastic changes that interfere with the central nervous system's ability to self-regulate self-organize, adapt, repair, and heal. So a couple of things. In terms of (coughs) the old stuff that made it in there, okay, we've got self-regulation, self-organization, adapt, repair, and heal. If we think about self-regulation, self-organization, what I think we're really talking about is homeostasis and autopoiesis, okay? So not new concepts, just sort of uh, putting it in lay language, as opposed to talking about homeostasis and autopoesis, I highlighted a few sections of this. The first part is central segmental motor control problems. So this is relating central nervous systems to, to segmental uh, changes and resulting motor problems that happen as a result of that. The next portion of this, and this is where it gets concerning, okay that involves a joint such as a vertebral motion segment. So what this definition does is opens it up beyond the spine, okay? not only to the pelvis and, and, and other you know, uh, 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 weight-bearing articulations, but any joint in the body. All right? <clears throat> the other portion of this to highlight is this joint such as a vertebral motion segment that is not moving appropriately. All right. So what you'll notice in this definition is that this is a stuck joint model, okay? The joint is stuck, we need to move it. Or the joint is hypermobile, all right? And perhaps we need to figure out a way to reduce that mobility. Now, I don't know of too many ways to reduce hypermobile joints except stabilizing with bracing and things of that nature uh, or, or adjusting the segments that are stuck to reduce that hypermobility. Okay? But we, do, we have to sort of surmise that that's what's going on here because it's not explicitly stated. You'll notice in this definition <clears throat> that there's nothing about alignment. Okay? It's a stuck joint model, resulting in ongoing maladaptive and, and everything else that we already talked about. Okay? So how do we get from here to this? You know, how, how and why did this happen? <clears throat> Dr. Kent yesterday talked about consensus, right? And many times in our profession, you know, things are done because they get a bunch of people in a room and a, uh, a definition or an idea or a plan is advanced, and then they get people to vote on it. And as Dr. Kent said, you know, if you get the right people in the room and then you take a vote, well, you can get people to agree on pretty much anything okay and this is opposed to an evidence-based model of you know coming up with whether it's standards of care practice guidelines or a definition (coughs) this is from Dana Lawrence uh, all the way back in 1997 the other reason we ended up here is because of politics attempts to define the term subluxation are regularly made only to fall afoul of political considerations rather than scientific ones we're making decisions about definitions of vertebral subluxation not based on the science we're making the decision based on politics okay and how certain groups or individuals can advance a political agenda based upon a definition and just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean it won't take an interest in you right even better, it applies here. One of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is you end up being governed by your inferiors. <coughs> now, when the Rubicon definition came out, there was some response to it. Now, now keep in mind that, that the concerns about this definition were voiced from way at the beginning all the way through the process. Okay? So when, they, when it was finally published, Well, then those that had some concerns voiced their concerns about it. It's interesting how those that voiced concerns were described, either expressing philosophical issues, those reflecting a lack of understanding of the science, right? just not smart enough to figure this out, you know, so we had to do it for you. Or those that rejected the concept of subluxation as an entity, okay? I'd say that there's a fourth one, those that understood the science and understand it's just not correct. Uh, so this was interesting for me because I the first time I actually had to reference a Facebook live video Um, so there it is (laughs) I've never had to do that before this was an interview a 20 minute or 30 minute interview done with um, Rob Scott who is involved in the Rubicon president of Life University this is what he had to say about the definition we was asked about Uh, why they chose to focus on one model or one definition of subluxation relative to the disafferentation model. So, he said, a very significant concern that was raised, and I think it's a really valid one, is well, what about all the other, you know, the subluxation statement is really one that supports disafferentation theory. And the question is, what about all the other theories? What about neurodystrophic theory? What about axoplasmic flow theory? What about nerve compression theory? And our response to it is, well, those are all valid theories. It's just that when we start taking the level of evidence that's available to support them, the one that we can kind of wrap our arms around collectively right now and go out to do more research in it, to maybe pool our resources is the one that's posited in the statement. So the argument is made that there's more research to support a disafferentation model or definition of vertebral subluxation than any other model. That's just simply not, not the facts. The other uh, statement that uh, Dr. Scott made in this was, right now, if we were talking about subluxation, the level of evidence for that paradigm doesn't rise to the level of evidence that there is for low back pain. Now you all here yesterday when Dr. Kent went over the literature on spinal manipulation and low back pain, okay? Giving somebody a pamphlet is just as effective as spinal manipulative therapy for low back pain, okay? So I would suggest that maybe there are some other folks that do not understand the literature, okay? Why do we end up where we end up, right? profession that substitutes ego for evidence charisma for knowledge and spiz for skill where do and by the way who is the first person to put disafferentation in the chiropractic literature right sitting right here in the room okay so who knows more about it right volume one issue one of the journal of vertebral subluxation there it is right it's even in the keywords first time it was ever used if afferent input is compromised, efferent input response may be qualitative and quantitatively compromised. Correcting the specific vertebral subluxation cause is paramount to restoring normal afferent input to the CNS allowing the body to correctly perceive itself and its environment. Why am I pointing this out? Because anybody can gap a joint, okay, and create afferentation. But are you correcting a subluxation in order to do that? And is there a difference between correcting a subluxation to create an afferent barrage as opposed to just creating an afferent barrage? Is there a difference between those two things? Although stimulation of articulum and counter receptors may exert an analgesic effect, use of manipulation for the episodic symptomatic treatment of pain is not chiropractic. So says Dr. Kent. The other thing that uh, was in that Facebook Live interview with Dr. Scott was he, he made a point to say that It wasn't their intention to look at anything that happened before the adjustment. Let that sink in for a second, okay? Well, then, if that's the case and that's the definition that you chose, then it's not even a disafferentation model or or definition. It's actually an afferentation. Okay? you just want to cause stimulation into the nervous system for whatever reason you want to cause stimulation into the nervous system you're not correcting a subluxation if you don't care about how you got there you know in terms of the methods of the procedures <coughs> so Ralph uh, Ralph said this in his paper since the literature contains considerable research which impacts positively and negatively on Palmer's hypothesis it would be naive to categorically accept or negate the theory based on the current state of investigation regarding its tenets, right? Don't throw it out if you haven't researched it. Uh, Boone says, Palmer's early vertebral subluxation model provides a theory, which to date has not been adequately tested. And that's still true today. Palmer's original concept of the vertebral subluxation has been redefined and or remodeled in the absence of convincing research to justify such change. We're changing these models based on politics and personalities as opposed to research and science. Uh, Boone and Dobson uh, proposed a, an evolving vertebral subluxation model based on uh, the four-component model, and here's what they came up with. A vertebral subluxation is a potentially reversible and or preventable alteration of the intervertebral relationships of one or more articulations of the spinal column or its immediate weight-bearing components of the axial skeleton accompanied by a change in the morphology of the tissue occupying the neural canal in foramina. So we still see the component. We see, still see all the components of the early vertebral subluxation model, as well as an alteration of neural function sufficient to interfere with the transmission of organizing information believed to be homologous to the mental impulse, those contributing to negative health outcomes. So this model honors everything that was in the original uh, definition of vertebral subluxation. The IFCO has a definition of vertebral subluxation. Now, so the, you're going to start to see a common theme over these next couple of slides. A vertebral subluxation is an alteration of the intervertebral relationships and one or more articulations of the spinal column or the immediate weight-bearing components of the axial skeleton, word for word, from Ralph Boone and Graham Dobson. Okay? So they have essentially adopted uh, that definition. Network. Uh, Network spinal analysis, vertebral subluxation is consequent to a neurological response to physical, emotional, environmental stress. The neurological response may precipitate or be precipitated by misalignments between articulations of the spinal column or its immediate weight-bearing components of the axial skeleton. The integrity of the nervous system is diminished as changes in morphology, oscillation, tension of the tissues occupying the neural canal and or or intervertebral foramina. So we're seeing a common theme uh, with these three definitions. The, going back to the ASRF definition, they've sort of kept in line with, uh, with those definitions. A vertebral subluxation is a diminished state of being, comp- comprising of a state of reduced coherence, altered biomechanical function, neurological function, and altered adaptability. So the commonalities in those few definitions, including uh, Stevenson's coordination, coherence, adaptability, organization, and tone. Okay. So we can sort of see that there is start there we're beginning to see a clear delineation in these models in terms of where they're going. We get into some organ other organization definitions. We get into the ICA. A subluxation is any alteration of the biomechanical and physiological dynamics of contiguous spinal structures which can cause neuronal disturbances. You'll notice that none of these, none of this terminology is there. none of that original terminology is there or or concepts are there Uh, a subluxation is evaluated diagnosed and managed for the use of chiropractic procedures based on the best available rational empirical evidence pay attention to that last sentence because you're going to see it again association of chiropractic colleges a subluxation is a complex of functional andor, structural andor pathological, articular changes that compromise neural integrity and may influence organ system function and general health. And look what we have here. It's evaluated, diagnosed, and managed through the use of chiropractic procedures based on the best available rational empirical evidence. Same uh, closing remark the ICA had. The ACA, believe it or not, has endorsed the ACC paradigm. I haven't seen anything from them that said they threw it out or may, you know changed their mind. Uh, they say chiropractic is concerned with the preservation and restoration of health, and focus particular attention on the subluxation. And then they go through and repeat the ACC definition. The ACO also says uh, this is in 2000. Uh, they adopted this resolution. The House of Delegates reaffirms the core principle of the subluxation. The ACA will strive to reiterate this principle and further state that the core treatment of chiropractic, you know, and then they the wheels fall off the wagon, right? They have a policy statement saying doctors of chiropractic assert that they are best trained uh, and qualified provider group in chiropractic to do spinal manipulation and adjustments, yada, yada, yada. And then they note here individuals with less training and expertise in doctors of chiropractic may provide outcomes that are less than optimal and can pose unnecessary health and safety risks and possible complications for patients. We don't know if that's true. That's a belief, but we don't know if it's true. And then recently, as Dr. Kent covered yesterday, the ACA has come out and said, basically, yeah, we embrace subluxation, but we're not going to allow you to measure it. (laughs) We're not going to allow you to take x-rays pre and post to see if there's a misalignment component of the vertebral subluxation, and then after you adjust them to see if you've reduced that misalignment component. So we're all about the subluxation, but. Right. So we're going to it's going to be interesting to see what they do, because if you want to be a member of the ACA now, you actually have to sign a pledge that you're going to adhere by these sublux, these uh, X-ray guidelines that Dr. Kent went over yesterday. This is from uh, the Journal of Chiropractic and Osteopathy. Okay uh if you look at the names of the authors here uh and you understand who's who in this profession you will understand that these people are are very well entrenched in third-party pay especially a one of the largest managed care chiropractic organizations doing business in the profession okay and this is in a paper that they wrote by the way the new school in florida uh, kaiser university has adopted this model that they spell out in this paper okay others promote the use of x-rays on nearly every patient in order to determine biomechanical deviations from a theoretical model of a normal spine implying that this information is so essential to successful treatment that the benefit outweighs the very real risk of radiation exposure these and other business practices promoted across the profession are tolerated without challenge these practices degrade the credibility of the profession and its members as competent clinicians and diminish the public's trust and level of cultural authority and this applies to upper cervical people too right because we know that there is a normal model in terms of alignment uh, in the upper cervical spine okay so we went all the way back to the beginning relative to chiropractic definitions we went in the middle now we're going to go really more historically the earliest English, def- English definition of vertebral subluxation, Randall Holmes, 1688, a dislocation of putting out of joint. No neurological component there in 1688. But then in 1821, we see the discussion of a neurological component. When any of the vertebrae become displaced or too prominent, the patient experiences inconvenience from a local derangement in the nerves of the part. He, in consequence, is tormented with a train of nervous systems which are as obscure in their origin as they are stubborn in their nature. <clears throat> and then we have D.D. and B.J. Palmer, signs of chiropractic subluxation means pressure on nerves, abnormal functions, creating a lesion in some portion of the body, either in its action or its makeup. And that brings us to sort of fleshing this out a little bit more uh, with models of vertebral subluxation. Okay? These, will, these will be a little more familiar to most of you. We have component models, subluxation, degeneration models, nerve root compression model, disafferentation model, which we've already discussed, a neurodystrophic model. If you think about a component model, we first saw this uh, really with Leonard Fay. And then you know, Joe Felicia and Renaissance took that model and created a practice management company based on this. right? They, they developed all those posters, stages of degeneration, yada, yada, yada. Okay? So that's where that component model comes from. But it was really first described by Fay. And the original model had five components, spinal kinesiopathology, neuropathology, myopathology, histopathology, and biochemical changes. And then along came uh, Skip Lance. If anybody went to school at life in the uh, 80s, uh, Skip Lance probably taught you biochemistry and you learned about this model. All he did was essentially add some additional components to it. So we added vascular pathology, inflammatory response, pathoanatomy, pathophysiology, pi- pathobiochemistry. So this model, vertebral subluxation complex model, now has nine components and aspects to it. Okay, so it went from that original five to nine. Uh, when you look at the, the sort of the pictorial on this, it's important to understand that kinesiopathology in this model is at the top because kinesiopathology in this model is the initiating factor okay if, you, if we went back and looked at that network definition there was sort of a discussion in that in that definition that one could cause the other you know it can go back and forth not in this model it can't okay so if, if you want to say well you know there was there was some changes in the neurology and that caused kinesiopathology well you're talking about a different model now Okay. And, and we have a real problem in this profession where people talk about these models and definitions, and they're blending two or three of them uh, when you know, they really mean something else. Okay. You know, if we look at this and really expand it, right? Vertebral subluxation complex, <clears throat> you have all the components. And then if you just talk about the subset of the neurological component, I mean, look at what we got here. We have nerve compression hypothesis, proprioceptive insult, somatosympathetic research, viscerosomatic, somatosomatic, neurodystrophic, dentate ligament, psychogenic, cord compression, brain hibernation, neuroplasticity, spinal learning, disafferentation, right? And there's a lot of, a, a lot of meat to this. Just in terms of the biochemistry of this, okay? this is just, this is just a table. This is from uh, Rome. I think it was in the, the Chiropractic Journal of Australia. And it's just a listing of all of the research that's been done on chiropractic or spinal manipulation and how it affects biochemical changes within the body. So we have, we have some rich evidence there uh, in the literature on how uh, adjustments or spinal manipulation uh, can affect the biochemistry of the body. And then we have the nerve root compression model, right? The the famous uh, Seth Sharpless from uh, the National Institutes of Health, 1975. You know the whole thing about the weight of a dime, 10 millimeters of mercury, and all that sort of stuff, right? Nerve root compression model. Now the interesting thing is, chiropractors want to throw this out, right? Here is a podcast. Are you still telling the bone on nerve story? Like that's a bad thing. Like like that model doesn't exist anymore. Like I don't know. We got to a point, and oh no, hard bones don't press on soft nerves anymore right <clears throat> here's a review of literature on that the effects of mild compression on spinal nerve roots with implications for miles of vertebral subluxation what does the author say the garden hose theory of uh, hard, or hard bone soft nerve explanation of vertebral subluxation is considered by some to be archaic but appears to be a valid entity I mean, an entire review of literature on this concept and this is an old paper at this point never mind what's been added to it <coughs> Nah, hard bone on soft nerve. You t- still telling that story, right? I mean, are, are, are you freaking kidding me? That's a hard bone, and it's present on soft stuff. There's no question about it. Look at the soft tissue. Anybody, you know, I practiced in South Florida. Well, it's the largest outdoor nursing home, and I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> that was my bread and butter. That's what walked in and out of my office every day. That model, okay. So it's not about what model we like. It's about what model or models are manifesting in the patient that's laying on your table. And that's our responsibility to figure that out, not to try to fit every patient into one particular model. There's all types of uh, literature out there on the relationship of spinal curvatures and and health. So we're talking about misalignments. If we talk about a global misalignment relative to spinal curves. Impact of positive sagittal balance and in spa- adult spinal deformity. Here's, uh, here's right out of that paper. All measures of health status showed significantly poorer scores as the C7 plumb line deviation increased. Patients with relative kyphosis in the lumbar region had significantly more disability than patients with normal or lordotic lumbar sagittal cob measures. Hyperkyphotic posture predicts mortality in older community-dwelling men and women. Look at this conclusion. Older men and women with hyperkyphotic posture of higher mortality rates. I, I, you know, if I'm practicing Florida now, that's my ad. Right? Not somebody with a lightning bolt coming out of their back. Not the eight danger signals. It's, you know what, if you're walking around like this, you're going to die sooner than if you don't get that fixed. Here's another one progressive spinal kyphosis in the aging population. It may be associated with adverse health consequences, including impaired physical function, pain and disability, impaired pulmonary function, and increased mortality. This thing kills people. We already talked about the disaffrontation model. Then we have neurodystrophic model. Decreased thresholds in efferent neurons arising from the anterior and lateral horn cells are postulated to result in increased impulse traffic to the somatic and visceral structures innervated by the affected neurons. Neural dysfunction is stressful to body tissues, and lower tissue resistance can modulate specific and nonspecific immune responses and alter the trophic function of the involved nerves. So this gives us an understanding of how does chiropractic, how does subluxation affect the immune system. And if you want to really take a deep dive, get yourself a copy of this paper. I mean, they got it set up like a book. There's so much information in here relative to that model. And then Dr. Kent, I I won't uh, spend time going over this because he did a better job going over it yesterday than I did. But Dr. Kent uh, has a four-dimensional model that he has uh, put into the literature, disafferentation, dyskinesia, dyspenesis, and dysautonomia. And dysponesis was discussed yesterday and defined, so we'll just sort of skip through those. Other models, we have the dentate ligament cord distortion uh, model, right? John Grostick's work, a uh, seminal paper in the Chiropractic Research Journal back in the late 80s. The psychog- psychogenic models of subluxation, brain hibernation models of subluxation, uh, which uh, talk about how uh, portions of the brain actually go to sleep for periods of time and then you know what if people get adjusted they can wake up again psychosocial models involving psychogenic concepts mental emotional state and their influence on structure and then somatopsychic concepts the structural influence on mental and emotional states right goes both ways relative to psychogenic stuff we we know all about the stress response if you're under stress all this stuff increases all this stuff decreases We know from the chiropractic literature that chiropractic care and subluxation correction has an effect on anxiety, addiction, depression, ADHD, relaxation, cognitive function. All this stuff is in the literature. Hopefully we're familiar with Jay Holder's work right, relative to the psychogenic model and the brain reward cascade model uh, of vertebral subluxation. Uh, very powerful model and very powerful work that uh, jay did in this area and then we can break models down based on technique okay dr kent wrote about this in jvsr segment we have segmental models postural models and tonal models some examples okay not to piss anybody off just you know just a couple of examples uh, segmental model examples Gonstead and diversified postural models chiropractic biophysics Pettibon. Applied Spinal Biomechanical Engineering, ASBE, tonal models, network spinal analysis, torque release technique. Some aspects of SOT could perhaps be considered uh, tonal. Other aspects of, of SOT might be segmental. Okay? And that brings us back to, you know, why bother? Chiropractors can't agree on a definition of vertebral subluxation, right? We have all these definitions out there. We have all these models out there. Well, obviously, I, you know, I just convinced you we can't agree on them. Okay? <coughs> Reach under your seat. These, there's a pair of these under everybody's seat. <coughs> Here's the reality. Okay. Common to every model and definition of vertebral subluxation that's out there, okay, if you were paying attention, is a biomechanical component and a neurological component. It's common to every model. So uh, quite the opposite in terms of disagreement on vertebral subluxation. There is widespread agreement on vertebral subluxation that it includes a biomechanical component and a neurological component at a minimum. And we can add a bunch of other stuff depending upon the model or definition you're looking at. We also have objective, valid, and reliable measures or tools to measure components. Of vertebral subluxation including the biomechanical neurological component and this is crucial as dr. Kent talked about yesterday okay dr. Kent talked about operational models an operational definition is a description of the procedures used to determine the means for measuring observing something the potential exists for subluxation resolution to be conceptualized as a legitimate intermediate health outcome pending the development of a sufficient and requisite body of scientifically derived derived clinical evidence okay we need scientifically valid and reliable measures of subluxation in order to scientifically examine the relationship between a patient's subluxation and that patient's health. And here is some of them. These are all objective, valid, and reliable ways to measure components of vertebral subluxation. You know, are, but the, the question, So the question isn't, do they exist? The question is, are we using them? Or are we stuck in the horse and buggy era? Are we still doing things that we did way back when? because for whatever reason we refuse to get, you know, with the current technology and the current information and do the things that we should be doing to help our patients, okay? So things like x-ray video flora, CT, MRI, computerized muscle testing, surface EMG, uh, somatosensory evoked potentials, dermatomal evoked potentials, visual and auditory evoked potentials. You know, um, uh, Casalucci yesterday was, was talking about infants and children and, and you know, looking at posture and things of this nature. And it's all great. I mean, this is stuff that, that, that I do, that we all do. How valid and reliable are these things? Okay? You, you know, we, you could take infants, though, and you could do visual and auditory evoked potentials and get objective information about what's happening right there at the brainstem, pre and post. How come we're not doing that? If subluxations kill people, why aren't we using the most valid and reliable measures to determine if somebody's got them? and then whether or not we've reduced it. <coughs> Dr. Kent said yesterday, it was, it was, I think it was Dr. Kent, semantic pathologies. I threw this in here. These are instances in which two more ideas are important to distinguish or are lumped unnoticed together in the same linguistic expression. Okay? <coughs> so here's a run on this. Adjustment, manipulation, subluxation, Articular dysfunction, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about with the semantic pathology. The WHO guidelines of basic training and safety in chiropractic it defines an adjustment, right? Dr. Kent, we, we didn't like this therapeutic part. But ultimately, an adjustment uses controlled force, leverage, direction, amplitude, and velocity, right? Specific, right? We, we use an exacting analysis to determine exactly how it's misaligned and then to apply the most specific adjustment we can in order to reduce it, OK? as opposed to joint manipulation, a manual procedure involving directed thrust to move a joint past the physiological range of motion. How exciting is that? Sherman College, adjustment, a controlled force employing leverage, direction, amplitude, velocity, applied to a specific vertebra. Why? Why are we doing it? To correct the subluxation. And then the body will determine what to do with that. Versus a manipulation, forceful, passive movement of joint beyond its physiological range of motion. It's not done for the correction of vertebral subluxation and it's not synonymous with an adjustment. Hallelujah, Sherman College, right? And I'm throwing a new model in the literature today, the stuck joint model, okay? And the goal of that model is to unstick stuck joints. You don't get any more simple than that, right? I mean, wouldn't life be easy? I mean, I want you to imagine that you're going home tonight and you go into practice, and if this model it works, if this model gives the same result as an exacting analysis to determine if there's a subluxation and to see if you reduce it after the adjustment, if this model does the same thing, wouldn't practice be easy? Well, you just fill this room with tables, lay them down, and rock them and crack them. Wouldn't life be easy? right? Pay at the door. Okay. And that, unst- that, that stunk joint model is accomplished via — I love these terms, grip and rip.? Okay? And we have the, the, the famous Curtis Fedorchuk, to thank for that terminology, right So if you're adjusting the cervical spine, the technique you use in a stuck joint model is the grip and rip. If you're, I heard this yesterday, I forget who said it. if you're adjusting the thoracic spine, it's bump thumping. right That's the technique for that. And if you're doing the lumbars of pelvis, you do a million-dollar row. Right? So we have a whole model and a technique, and I'm taking it on the road. Right? <laughs> I guarantee you, there would be more people at that seminar than are in the room today. Matt, you forgot, forgot what? Hefo. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear know what she said? Hefo hit every freaking one. I'm gonna add that. So as I said before, right? Chiropractors have just discovered the brain. Now, if you were paying attention this morning, you know that the brain was discussed way back when in the mental impulse. That's what we're talking about. So the brain is not new to chiropractic. The brain is new to chiropractors that have suddenly discovered it. Okay? That's Homer Simpson's brain, right? So we have a study we're going to do. And this is not a joke. This is serious as a heart attack. Because here's where I'm at at this point in my professional career in this profession. I'm tired, to be quite honest with you. I've had it. Okay, Let's get it over with. Let's just find out once and for all if any of this matters. Okay, Why spend all this time, effort, money, energy to figure out where the bone is, how much it's misaligned, what we got to do to get it, how I got to stand, and all this stuff if it doesn't matter? So we have what we are affectionately terming the self-cracker study, OK? Rich cracker. <laughs> Rich cracker study. The cracker study. So here's what we're going to do. Three groups of people and maybe a placebo. We haven't figured that part out yet, OK? We're going to have the grip and rip group, OK? So we're going to have a bunch of patients. Gonna, here's here's the, 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 uh, the criteria to be accepted in the study. Patients who self-manipulate. Okay? That's the criteria. If you self-manipulate, you're going to be in this study. Okay? So, one group, the chiropractor is going to do the manipulation, okay? Without any analysis, grip and rip, just let it go. Okay? And we're going to measure what happens to the brain as a result of that, pre and post. Okay? Then we're going to let the patient do it themselves. Okay? Self-crack and see if we get the same effect, or it's better or worse. Who knows? And then we're going to actually analyze and see if they're subluxated, adjust them, and see what happens to the brain. Because if the person who can crack their own neck can get the same result as an exacting analysis, then we need to, Then our ethical and moral obligation is to go out into the public and teach people how to do it themselves. right? I mean, if we're real, if we're honest with ourselves, that's where we're at. So we're back to why bother. See, the issue is, is not whether or not subluxation exists. It's not whether or not we agree on definitions and all this stuff. It's whether or not we use the language. It's whether or not we have the intent. And it's whether or not our procedures follow the language and the intent. That's what it's about. Instead, we have all these supposed chiropractic researchers out there putting stuff into the literature, not using our terminology or our procedures. But they are, they are heel, held as the heroes, right? I've got all the evidence for this. You can get it, right? You can look it up yourself. Bill talked about radical science yesterday, right? Radical science, focused on vertebral subluxation. This is mine, I threw this in here. Use of our profession's unique and distinct terminology in all research. Vertebral subluxation is not the same thing as joint dysfunction. A specific spinal adjustment is not the same thing as spinal manipulation. Research focused on the salutogenic-related outcomes that happen when people's subluxations are corrected should be the focus. Research focused on the health outcomes that happen from people undergoing lifetime, family subluxation-centered chiropractic that should be the focus and it really shouldn't be considered radical because ultimately we want to change health policy right if we really want every man woman and child on the chiropractic care we got to change health policy we did the so what questions we did all that at the beginning gotta throw in a Fred Barge quote a great profession can only be sustained through the authentic transmission of its principles from generation to generation right that pretty much summarizes the the entire 50 minutes right let me leave you with this thought that is anybody know what that is that's Alpha Centauri so that is the closest other star system to us okay it is 4.3 light years for those that don't know I didn't it's 25 trillion miles from us okay it would take the space shuttle 165,000 years to get there if it left today okay we are building spaceships to go to Alpha Centauri right now as we're talking about this okay Stephen Hawking Mark Zuckerberg And Yuri Milner Russian oligarch billionaire are working on this project Yuri Milner and Zuckerberg are funding it Hawking is overseeing the setup of this thing okay they're gonna be building this satellite that they're gonna send up out of Earth's orbit when it gets out of Earth's orbit it's gonna release all these tiny spaceships about as big as an iPad okay actually a little smaller than an iPad and those little spaceships are going to use solar sails okay to travel to Alpha Centauri, because there is some planets there that we think there might be life on. And so they're going to send these spaceships to take pictures of these planets to see what's going on there. And it's only going to take them 25 years to get there, Okay? Why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about astronomy at a chiropractic seminar on Sunday morning, right? when everybody hasn't had enough coffee. Because it goes back to the technical means. The technical means exists to solve the subluxation question. It's the will of the profession that's missing. If we can spend, send little spaceships 25 trillion miles to another star system to see if there's life on a couple of planets that exist there, do you think we can figure out the freaking subluxation question. Can we figure it out, people? Can we just do that? Thank you for your attention. I appreciate and love all of you. Down the roof. <laughs> hey, good to five see five you. All. Thank you. Leaving? That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Can it. I get a copy of that? Yeah. 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 To remind me if I you forget to send I do have a question. Was Faye the first one that came with the component? Well, I thought that came from uh, Homewood's book. No, no. came no. from Faye. Yeah. yeah, Chris goes over that in his paper. Wasn't an, uh, book, too? The of and an Not that I know I, I Maybe not as delineated in terms of the five components. There might have been maybe two. Okay. Hey. it's Good to see brother, you, man.